Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, with Pastor John King. Well, as we uh, move towards the end of chapter 5 in Ephesians, we're going to be talking about these important relationships, marriages and family relationships. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I share your enthusiasm, Miss Heidi. I'm really glad to see what God is doing in our church and, and to be appreciative of the parents who are willing to, you know, partner with us in a sense uh, to help these kids uh, launch out into the world. And you parents, you're the ones that are going to have to, you know, launch those arrows and your desire is for them to hit the mark. And so we want to help you with the guys with that. And uh, again, we, we can't emphasize more the need for prayer and, uh, you know, that, that in itself is really uh, what keeps people going. It's really what motivates people, uh, even in the hardest times. I might have shared with you recently, but Pastor Kevin uh, Edwards lost his wife, Lisa, of 28 years uh, last month. And, uh, you know, he, he did say, he said, you know, the only reason he could stand in public at that time uh, and actually speak was because of the prayers of the saints, people lifting him up. And we were a part of that. I know you guys prayed for Pastor Kevin. And Lord willing, we'll see him at the marriage retreat. And I think you're going to hear a, possibly a powerful word from the Lord. Uh, you know, because as, as the Lord takes us through the very difficult times in our life, he does amazing work. Amen? Amen. Well, today, if you will, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 22 through 33. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Last week we received Paul's instruction on how to walk carefully with wisdom and making good use of the time we have. And you're going to understand why that was so important when we start talking about these topics. Okay? Um, but we are to do this continuously Seeking God's will. How, how do we walk in our life as Christians? By seeking God's will under the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in our own wisdom. It, never, it's, it, it seems to take us to a dead end, I've found. And this week, Paul's instruction concerning our Christian walk takes us to a place where the rubber really meets the road. I mean, we can look all good and nice and pretty, and we all do, right? You guys are beautiful on Sunday. But where the rubber really meets the road is where marriages are being worked out and, and God is being glorified. But then there's things we work through, illness and such, and all kinds of problems. So this is where the Lord wants to equip us. And if you're a single here today, you know, I know that the topic does center around it. But you can always learn from what God's word, what he expects. If you're a young single and you expect to be married someday, you're praying to the Lord that you would have a wife or a husband, this is good instruction for you. And I think you're going to learn, I'll just say this, you're going to learn that the most important thing about choosing a husband or a wife is that the person you choose, especially wives, is somebody you can respect. Not necessarily somebody that this is the most romantic, okay? But somebody you can respect, and we're going to talk about that today. So in this walk section of Ephesians, Paul has given us so far through, as we've been going through this section of Ephesians, the second half, he's given us some uh, commands to guide us. 
Uh, Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Our marching orders. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And just last week, we had another instruction of the fee from Ephesians 5.21. This discussion, this, this topic of submission, and we see from last week's message that the last verse, 5.21, it says that we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. So keep in mind that it does go both ways, even though today's message, we're going to start out with the women, and then we're going to get to the men. I was saying earlier, I'm wearing a flak vest. You don't realize that. <laughs> I got some spiritual armor on. I got my helmet on. But I bring these, these scriptures to you. Why? Why do I bring these scriptures to your attention? Because how you and I operate under these guiding principles will prove to ourselves and to others just how serious and genuine, genuine we are about our faith and our Christian walk. Whether or not we're being filled by the Holy Spirit or whether we allow ourselves to be controlled by our flesh. So today we're going to learn about how submission, that terrible word, <laughs> submission governs the operation of authority within the Christian home and specifically in marriage which is the most intimate kind of human relationship, that of a husband and a wife. Join me in prayer. Father, I, I pray, Lord, I, you know, especially today, I pray, Lord God, that you would equip me to speak clearly. Lord, I pray that the enemy would not allow anything to be misunderstood about your word. I just pray, Lord God, that it would bring truth and it would be, be clear and understanding, Lord God, that our hearts would be open to understanding that we would fight back the influences of culture and the past hurt we may have had in relationships with others, Lord. I pray you will just simply work again as you seek to do in our hearts as we are filled with your Holy Spirit and we eagerly anticipate the word that you have for us today. Go before us now, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So again, we're going to start. This is going to be the topic of marriage. Uh, next week, we'll talk about family relationships, children, husband, uh, fathers and parents and mothers. And then the uh, third week we'll talk about relationship between employees and employers. So this is where it gets real and it's where it gets serious. You know, this is, uh, if you have in your Bible, you may see a, a, a it's kind of a chapter break where it might say like mine does, marriage, Christ in the church. And it's real important that we, we recognize that. Um, but yours doesn't say that. I'm sorry, Tim. Um, a spirit. Some of them say it. Some of them don't. But what we have, what we have here is a spirit-filled wife's mandate from God. A spirit-filled. Notice, if if I say submit and you, if a husband says submit to me, woman, uh, he's he is never going to. Uh, first of all, that's the wrong way to say it. But. Uh, so, you know, both partners can be so, this is going to be a fun message, uh, so 
in their flesh, we must be spirit-filled as Christians. God's given us help. God's given us help. So as, as I've been saying, and as you kind of notice right off, that teaching from this subject of God's word can be very challenging. Why? One writer said it this way. This is the age of liberation. You talk about submission today, and it's seen as countercultural. The word submit connotates oppression and subjugation or dominance. And in discussing the subject, one runs the risk of being misunderstood and possibly vilified. So what an understatement I would start out with to say. I don't really need to inform you, though I'm going to, that biblical truth has been and continues to be distorted by sinful men, sinful men and sinful women. You know, we've been warned. We've been warned about what's going on right now in our culture. We've been warned about what was going to happen when the Bible was taken away from the school systems. We've been warned about the effect it would have on our society. But this problem has been around a long time. Okay, it's been around a long time. That's why Paul, 2,000 years ago, was writing this letter to the Ephesians. Let's talk a little bit about the obvious as it relates to what men in particular have done, how they've done harm to the institution of marriage. Hughes writes this, God's holy word in the hands of a religious fool can do immense harm. I have seen couch potatoes who order their wives and children around like the Grand Sultan of Morocco. Adulterous misogynists, those are women haters, with domestic ethics of Jabba the Hutt, who cow their wives around with Bible verses about submission. These are insecure men whose wives do not dare to go to the grocery without permission. But the fact that evil, disordered men have perverted God's word, listen, is no reason to throw it out. No reason to throw it out. I could also quote the many problems with radical feminism and how it's worked to emasculate God's desire for males in society and marriage. In fact, both sides of this male, female, gender topic are being blurred or totally outrageous. They're, they're being forcibly coerced into gender neutrality and fluidity. And I could, I could go on and on with that. You, know, you guys know the state of affairs. But let's be reminded, why did God establish marriage? He established and ordained marriage between a man and a woman as a way to provide one companionship, to populate the earth, and to satisfy the God-given desire for intimacy. Those are the main reasons why God created marriage. And apart from God's plan... Marriage can, in our culture, is kind of like a business transaction, an ego-centered agenda of self-fulfillment. I get the trophy wife and the beautiful children, and you get the dutiful provider and the white picket fence. It's like an alliance that is to promote personal growth over a lifelong commitment of mutual love and service. Of course, until marriage gets difficult. Expectations and dreams become unfulfilled. 
illness and unforeseen problems arise, then what happens? Well, Christians are often no different than the world. You know, if it's not working, you throw it away and you go find your own fulfillment somewhere else. Even worse, in recent years, marriage as an institution has been discarded altogether with the rise of cohabitation and domestic partnerships. But the society that Paul ministered to had just as low a view as marriage of marriage as we see today. The Greek poet Demosthenes, the Greek statesman, he said this about the current state of affairs back in a couple hundred years B.C. He said, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily uh, cohabitation. And we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all of our household affairs. Socrates was quoted as saying this, Is there anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters than to your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less? I mean, marriage was, a, was just, you know, just as much of a train wreck in all the things of society as it is today. And that's why the gospel is so important. That's why changed lives under Christ and the word of God is so important because what did it do? It, it changes society. It shifts the culture. And that's historically what Christianity has done and still is doing. And we're called to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that. All that to begin with the very first verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That word submit, to be subject to, Greek word is hupotasso. And you know, in general, it's primarily a military term. So it doesn't sound good to begin with, does it? To rank under, to arrange. Now before we talk a little bit more about this military term, notice that it says, submit to your own husbands. You see, you need to recognize, and men would need to recognize this, because this is what, taking this out of context, is, was what fueled feminism to begin with. Your own husbands means it's limited to the Christian home. And then, of course, male headship is limited to the Christian church, we believe, here at Calvary Chapel. But it doesn't extend out into society. You know, it's not something, oh, women, you know, you can't, and, and we know all the, if you've been on this planet long enough, you've seen all the women's liberation things that have taken place, and you can easily recognize it and, and research it. But it's limited to the Christian home, and that's what we're talking about. Now, even though this is a military term, hupitasso, uh, in a military fashion, you know, under the command of a leader, it's not used that way in Christian marriage. It's not used that way. What is it? It's more like a non-military sense. Like a voluntary army, if you will. A voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. That's what submit means to do on a voluntary basis. 
And so you might ask the question, especially if you're trying to explain this to somebody who doesn't know the Lord or doesn't believe in the Bible the way you do. One reason is, or two reasons really, why, why does the command wives submit to your husband? Well, because it's God's will and it comes under God's order. He says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Not because he's Mr. Wonderful. Okay, that's not why you do it. Because it's God's will. The Christian wife is commanded by God to submit to her own husband because she, listen, she has committed herself to Christ. And she has made Jesus the Lord of her life. So at least in principle, she has no problem submitting to her husband. Now this is a two, this is a, two, a double, a two-sided coin. You know, husbands or wives, spouses can make it very difficult to follow God's mandate about marriage. But here's what it doesn't mean when it comes to wives and submitting to their husbands. Wives are to treat their husbands, excuse me, this is not, what it, if you're taking notes, this is what it does not mean. It does not mean that wives are to, to treat their husbands as the Lord or like the Lord. They are to see their submission as a duty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to explain the next reason, male headship, which is part of God's order. Verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. There's a lot in there. When he says the husband is head, that uh, Greek word kephale, metaphorically, it speaks of the authority or direction of God in relation to Christ. It all has to tie together. And it speaks of Christ in relation to believing men, and then it speaks of the husband in relation to the wife, like a circle almost. So he is to, or excuse me, she is to submit to her husband because of God's will. It's what God says to do. None of this is being made up by me. This is, this is God's word. Now, I'll just say very, very, very quickly, there's basically two camps in the Christian church about male headship. One is called complementarianism, and that's what we hold to here at Calvary Chapel. It means that husbands, wives, males and females are totally equal in the sight of God. They're not any smarter or better than each other, but there are specific roles that God has. That's called complementary roles that work together. There's another camp in the church that's very popular among the liberal side of the church. It's called egalitarianism. And what they do is they take, and, and if anybody, if you've ever done any uh, lengthy research on this, you find that they have to really stretch the scriptures to make it fit. And that's where you end up with churches with, you know, female pastors. I'm not going to go down that road too far. But it does open the door for a very liberal approach to scriptures. But it also puts much more responsibility, if you choose not to go that way, on how we as men conduct ourselves. And women as, as women too. So because it's God's order, this is the second reason for submission. It's because God himself ordained the leadership role in Christian marriage to the husband. God created Adam first and gave him dominion over the earth. 
So keep in mind, you guys, it's almost common sense. Every organization, every, everything that you've ever been a part of, family, sports team, whatever it is, in order to be successful requires leaders and team members or partners to voluntarily cooperate, voluntarily cooperate with each other. Everyone has a role and a purpose. And the degree to which each person lives up to their role determines the success of an organization. And so it is with the Christian home. But notice also, Paul doesn't just leave it there. He says, I'm going to show you a pattern that you can understand that's a little bit better. The relationship between Christ and his church. The example, if you will. He says, it says in the verse, as also Christ is head of the church. Now we can't argue that Christ is our Lord. He is in charge. He is over the church. And because Jesus has been given the role of headship, if you will, over the church, the wife becomes like the bride. The church becomes like the bride, excuse me. And so there's a comparison. And because he loves her, she, excuse me, the bride, us, loves her Lord and Savior, we willingly fall into God's plan. Why is that? Well, think about what Christ does for his bride. He says here, Christ is head of the church, but he is also Savior of the body, the preserver. Paul is encouraging the Christian wife to see the role for her husband that is perfectly illustrated by Christ. She'll see the imperfect in her husband, but she'll see the perfect in Jesus. And that is one of servant leadership. You know, I think it's appropriate to mention, I mean, let's be honest here, men and women, husbands and wives. The, the call that God has for us, the instruction that God has for us in marital love, whether it means submission on the part of the wife or for husbands, as we're going to talk about, to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, is It's staggering. I mean, every time you go down this road, every time you start to talk about this topic, I like what one writer put it this way. He said, there is no honest Christian husband or wife who can, bear, or who can hear these words and not feel the punch. Just being honest. As Christ exercises authority over the church so as to save and protect it, so let the husband exercise authority over his wife. How? This is how you exercise authority over your wife's husbands. By protecting, by comforting, and providing her with every necessary comfort of life according to his power, writes Adam Clark. And that's a lot different than what society would tell you about submission, isn't it? In verse 24, he restates the whole thing. You know, it's, this is something we, we need to hear it again in a lot of senses. He says, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Uh-oh, there's another trip-up word. Everything. Everything, yeah. Got to explain that one, don't we? 
Let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Again, it's family, not society. Okay, men don't have the right to dominate women in society and withhold opportunities for them, leadership positions. But he says, in everything, uh, that's another landmine, just blew up right here in your mind. Now, because of this strong statement in everything, and coupled with the fact that men and women are subject to the fall and quite capable of distorting God's truth about marriage, we need to do what? Well, remember, last couple of weeks we've been talking about being wise and accurate, circumspect in how we walk. Now, there are many examples of how submission of the wife is misunderstood and not biblical. I want to talk about three of them. First of all, submission does not mean women are inferior to men. Galatians 3.28, you know, as all I need to tell you, Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So submission does not mean women are inferior to men. Submission does not extend beyond the Christian home, as we've said, submit to your own husbands. And lastly, headship is not dictatorship. It's not dictatorship. When we say in everything, you have to use common sense here. Everything that the Lord would have you do as Christ provides the example is what we really mean. I mean, you share in everything as a husband and a wife. But there are exceptions. David Guzik lists a few. First of all, sin on the part of the husband. We're talking about the husband wanting his wife to submit and he's living in sin. Blatant sin. She's not to have to fall under that if he won't come to grips, if he calls himself a Christian. How about a husband who's medically incapacitated or insane? You don't have to come under that authority. And then, of course, there's uh, the tragedy of physical abuse. You don't have to come under that as authority because it's unsafe and it's unlawful and it's wrong. It doesn't represent Christ. And, of course, a, a woman does not have to come under the dictatorship or, excuse me, the submission of men because of things like adultery. But most often we're dealing with sin in the form of difficult and ungodly headship by the husband or a rebellious disrespect or ungodly submission by the wife. Instead of loving headship, husbands either dominate or become passive. It's like, oh, you want it that way? Okay, I'll do nothing. Uh, you can make all the decisions until you make the wrong one. Then I'm going to say something again, right? Passive-aggressive. Instead of intelligent, willing submissions, wife tend, wives tend to usurp or become like grudging slaves. But remember, in this section, there are two main reasons why the wife is to be submissive to her husband. First of all, submitting to God's will and submitting to God's order. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. This is a good picture. And keep in mind, you know, we all have to be honest enough to say that it's never perfect. There's ups and downs and there's good seasons and bad in all relationships. But he says this. He says, the Christian husband and wife should pray together and spend time in the word so that they might know God's will for their individual lives and for their home. Most of the marital conflicts I have dealt with as a pastor, and he was a pastor for, you know, decades, 
have stemmed from the failure of the husband or the wife to submit to Christ, spend time in his word, and seek to do his will each and every day. So you can save yourselves a lot of grief, you and I, if we'll just walk in a spirit-filled by the will of the Lord. And, and our challenges will come. But if we seek God's will. Okay, now husbands, you're up. How much time do we have? Oh, I only have about five minutes. Sorry, just kidding. This is going to be the spirit-filled husband's mandate. And that covers pretty much verses 25 through 32. 33, if you will. First of all, a husband's uh, love for his wife is to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church. It's called sacrificial love. He says so for her. If husband, husbands love your wife. What kind of love is that? What kind of love are we talking about? You guys know the Greek has like, I think, four, possibly five different uh, definitions of love. The most familiar to us... Um, one is, you know, passionate love, eros. The other is philia. This is the affection and closeness one feels in a kind of a two-way love, a friendship or a partnership or brotherly love, if you will. But here we're talking about agape love. This is a love from God. This is the highest form of love. Why? Because it's sacrificial and unconditional. It's not superficial. It's not dependent on emotions, but it's decisive. You've heard it said, you have to make a decision to love your wife or your husband or a person. And that's agape. That's agape love. And he says, just as Christ also loved the church, so much so that he died and gave birth to the church through his death. And he gave himself for her. He loved us enough, Jesus did, to die while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. But what does this really look like in a, in a practical sense in a marriage? If you're out taking notes, there's, there's four things that it should look like. Four key areas for husbands to die to themselves. One, to be praying, to be attentive, and to be faithful. That's, a, that's the role of us. It's a practical role of a husband. To die to yourself, to be attentive, to be praying with your wife. And to be faithful. What does it mean dying to self? Guys, domestic heroism. You know what domestic heroism? Maybe you're able to fix that leaky pipe without having to call the plumber. Maybe you're able to do something in the home that is where your wife spends most of her time. Perhaps in the kitchen. Not necessarily true in our day. And you make sure that she has what she needs. That everything's working. The dishwasher's working. The refrigerator hasn't blown up. A broken door latch, simple things that husbands can do. You can be a domestic hero. You die to yourself. You empty the dishwasher. You load the dishwasher. You take out the trash. You fold the clothes. Domestic heroes. Praying. A husband who prays. Now this speaks for itself. Guys, are we praying with and for our wives? And then, of course, the one that we have some of the most, I have a personal problem with it, and I bet some of you do too, is being attentive. Giving my wife the time that she needs 
Does the smartphone or the flat screen rob the time? I know it's NFL playoff season. Does it rob the time? You know, that's a battle. Husbands, we, I, I am guilty of being inattentive and distracted. And that's not loving. Years ago in the Midwest, the story was told of a farmer and his wife. They were lying on a bed during a storm when suddenly the funnel of a tornado lifted the roof right off their house. And it sucked away their bed with them still in it. And the wife began to cry. And the farmer called to her and said that there was no time to cry. But she called back and said she couldn't help it. And she was so happy. It was the first time they had been out together in 20 years. <laughs> Attentive. Are we being attentive? Dying to self, praying attentive. How about faithful? Perhaps you recall your marriage vows to have and to hold for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. Keep in mind that Jesus remains ever faithful to his bride. And so, men, we're called to be that as well. Dying to self, praying, attentive, and faithful. We said earlier, we've been saying all throughout, the, the, the husband's love for his wife is to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church. Sanctifying love. Not only sacrificial love, but sanctifying love. Notice in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. To be sanctified means to be purified. To be in Christ, the way he works in us, is to be made free from the guilt of sin. Set apart and cleansed. And when a couple is engaged for marriage, they both set themselves apart for each other. And that takes place, that consummates itself right there at the, at the wedding ceremony. They're set apart. One writer said this, he said, if the husband will love his wife to the point that he gives himself sacrificially, his love will not only protect him, and that's the truth, right, guys, you know, <laughs> but it will go a long way in protecting the sanctity and purity of his wife. With the washing in the water of water by the word. This is that word used word here. Yeah, oftentimes we think word, we think logos, but this is the word rhema, rhema. Orima, referring to the church being prepared for the heavenly wedding feast through the teaching of the word of God. The scriptures that we read this morning were from Revelation. We talked about the wedding feast, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what's being prepared for us. And the Bible is the basis for Christian marriage. And so that's why the Bible, it's, it's not good at all. It's terrible. It can be very disastrous to be unequally yoked in marriage. And for singles, you need to pay close attention to that. But this also refers how the husband's responsibility, you know, as a husband, you should seek to enhance and enrich your wife's spiritual growth. That's one of our responsibilities as husbands. Even though her salvation and sanctification is solely by the work of Christ, by living out your faith and devotion to Christ, you become a partner in her sanctification. 
And then we go on and, and, and Paul kind of goes off and gets into a little more interesting detail. He says in verse 27, Christ that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Again, we're speaking about the future time when he calls his church and we're there with him at this great wedding feast. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Referring to the future plans that he has for us. The Lord sanctifies his church. He's removing our sin spots, if you will. He's ironing out the wrinkles in our character, slowly but surely, as we submit to him. And for husbands, it means giving honor and careful avoidance of mistreatment, immoral behavior, or withdrawal to your hobbies, or just, you know, that passive thing that so many of us men fall prey to. Or ironing out the wrinkles of a bad temper, or broken promises, or severe selfishness. Which, again, this is where the rubber meets the road. But that she should be holy and without blemish. Separate and untouched by evil. Christ and his bride has been described as the romance of the ages. Now the point is striking, says one writer. It's a real eye-opener. It shows just how dependent the marriage is upon the love of the husband. How much effect the husband's love has upon the marriage. Few wives could reject such love. Few wives would refuse to walk hand in hand with their husbands if they truly love them with the love that is unselfish and sacrificial. And so when you read verses 25 and 27 together through that, you cannot escape the huge responsibility that we have as men. And the question asked by many, you've heard this before, men, is our wife more like Christ because she's married to us? Or is she like Christ in spite of us? Whatever our effect, our call is clear. Sanctifying love. Verse 28, in case we didn't get it the first time, right? Us husbands. He restates the whole thing. He says, so us husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now this truth becomes much more apparent as the days and the years go by in a marriage. Uh, if you have a habit of, as I have had, if you have a habit of making decisions and not taking into account my con the concerns of my wife, you realize that that eventually hurts. That's like stepping on your own foot or worse. Why? Because of this mystery of the church, the fact that a husband and wife are like one flesh. And it's been said often, and when you look at your selfies, okay, after you've been married for decades, you start to realize you're starting to look like each other. It's true. It's true, just a little bit. It just happens. Why? Because you're, you're, you're one flesh. You're together. Greek mythology, mythology tells of a beautiful youth who loved no one until the day he saw his own reflection in the water and fell in love with that reflection. He was so lovesick that he finally wasted away and died and was turned into a flower that bears his name, Narcissus. So we're talking about kind of a strange thing, like I should love my own body, like self-love. Is that what we're saying? Well, in a sense, yes, because you're, you're glued to your wife. 
to your spouse. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. It's an obligation, it's a duty, and it's a necessary. Necessitary. Necessity. Matrimony. Being joined together in holy matrimony, the husband and wife become, as I said, one flesh. And he who loves his wife loves himself. Because whatever each does to the other, he also does to himself or to herself. He goes on to state it even further. For no one ever hated his own flesh. No one ever detested their own flesh. But you nourish it and cherish it. How much time do you spend before the, in front of the mirror? Don't answer that question. Care for. Nourishing. Cherishing. To foster with tender care. Just as the Lord does the church. How much am I as a husband to nourish and cherish my wife? Well, it's in proportion to the extent that Jesus cares for the church. Biblical self-love is what we're talking about here, as opposed to narcissism, which actually expands on the command in Leviticus 19.18. It says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against your children or your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Verse 30, the reflection of Christ in the church is expanded now and explained in detail. We had sacrificial love, sanctifying love, now satisfying love. He says, for we are all members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. You know, prior to salvation, we once shared the nature of Adam. But now we share the nature of Christ. He is the head and we are the body and we are to help one another. Ephesians 4.16, from the whole body joined and knit together. This is talking about the church, the bride of Christ, where every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causing growth of the body for the edifying itself of itself in love. And again, talking about his flesh and his bones. He's, you know, Paul gets into great detail here. The intimacy of our union with Christ is being described in the marriage union. And he says, he quotes from Genesis 2.24, verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That word to be joined is proskaleo. This is, this is where we talk about cleaved, being glued together. And when you see a marriage ceremony and you add, the question's asked, let no man tear this apart. Because when a marriage comes apart, friends, the sad truth is it's like ripping a, a shirt Apart. It's like taking a fabric and just ripping it apart. It can be a very devastating experience. But remember, there is redemption, there is forgiveness, and there is restoration for those who call on Christ. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, Adam had to give part of himself in order to get a bride. But Christ gave all of himself to purchase the, the bride his bride at the cross. God opened Adam's side, but sinful man pierced Christ's side. So united are husband and wife that they are one flesh. Their union is even closer than the parents and the children. And that's something when we get into the next week's study, 
Uh, we're going we're gonna to learn our society tends to idolize their children. The parents idolize the children, and they neglect their own relationship, husbands and wives. The believer's union with Christ is even closer, and unlike human marriage, it will last for all of eternity. So we're, you know, we're the bride of Christ. We say it over and over again. He goes on. He says, how many people have confessed this? I am starved for love. There should be no starvation for love in the Christian home. For the husband and the wife should so love each other that their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs are being met. If both are submitted to the Lord and to each other, they will be satisfied. They will be so satisfied that they will not be tempted to look anywhere else for fulfillment. Verse 32, as we start, begin to close, verses 32 and 33. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Again, why is this a great mystery? Well, because Paul is describing the spiritual union that believers have with Christ and how it illustrates the Christian marriage. It's not just a legal contract. It's not just a piece of paper. It's much more than two people agreeing to live together and to be faithful. And it's more than having children. It's a spiritual union. It's mystery. So Christ and his love are the symbolic example for the husband. The church and its love for Christ are the symbolic example for the wife. I say it again. Christ's love for the church is the example for us as husbands. And the church's love for Christ is the example for the wife. You see, it requires two things for it to work. Love and respect. And if you lose either one of those, it gets bad. Both are required for obedience to God and the rewards he provides us in marriage. Verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife and as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So he just restates it. He kind of summarizes the whole thing about marriage. As I said earlier, if you're, if you're a young single girl, female, and you're looking for a husband, make sure he's a man that you can respect above every, everything else. Of course, there'll be attraction. There'll be everything else. Make sure he's a man you can respect. And if you're a Christian, make sure he is one too. Amen? As we close, uh, we, we mentioned earlier, uh, one of our annual events here at Calvary Chapel is our marriage retreat. And like Paul and like Christ, we are committed in upholding the Christian home and married love between a man and a woman to the highest level possible. We're committed to joining and partnering with God. And that's why we do these little marriage retreats. You know, we're not some big fancy church, obviously with endless resources. But when we come together for these little retreats, they can be very powerful, they can be very uplifting. Not only because the culture is increasingly coming against the traditional marriage, but also because we see the Christian home, we should see, as we learned today, as an illustration of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, Father, we thank you for our time today, Lord. We ask simply that you would to speak to us. Let, let the teaching of your word echo into our hearts and minds as we step out into the world this week, as we come back to our homes and our families, Lord God. 
Let us as husbands exercise the truth that we've learned today. Let us cherish and love our wives and care for them as Christ loves us. And for the wives, let them respect their husband because of their dedication to Jesus, their submission to the Lord. And Lord, we know that you provided a way for marriage to be wonderful. And Lord, just help us to be obedient unto you. And Lord, I want to pray as well for those who have not done so well, maybe uh, feel like relationships have been a very painful thing to look back upon, to be reminded of. And I would just ask, Lord, that your grace and your love would pour out onto the hearts and minds of those who have been through divorce and separation. Knowing, Lord God, that you are the God of all comfort and peace. Knowing that you will forgive our sins if we come before you and confess them. And that you're ever faithful to do so. And that you can rebuild our lives and you can, you can restore what the locusts have eaten and taken away, have gnawed at all of our lives. You can restore that. And for the marriages that are here today that are no doubt perhaps going through a rough and rocky time. I pray, Lord God, that your love and your power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would come between those husbands and those wives in a powerful way. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for the great example that you are for us, the pattern for behavior and life and for all of eternity. We ask now that you go before us as we conclude our final song. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. If you stand to worship, please stand. If I. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy. Righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless grace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is holy bound to strange and divine I can sing all is mine yet not I but through Christ in me the night is dark but I am not forsaken for by my the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need His power is displayed. To this I hold my shepherd will defend. Been 
in one and I shall overcome yet not I but through Christ in me no fate I dread I know I am forgiven the future it has been paid for Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon and he was raised to overthrow the grave to this I hold my sin has been defeated now and never is my plea oh the chains are released I can sing I am free yet not I but through Christ in me with every follow Jesus for he has said that he will bring me home and day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne to I hope my hope is only Jesus oh the glory evermore to him when the race is complete still my lips shall repeat yet not I but through Christ in Still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you and give you peace. God bless. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless. <laughs>